Welcome to Blooming Out, Indiana's only LGBTIQ plus news and public affairs show, featuring music, events, and interviews, both local and global. Live from the WFHB studios in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Blooming Out. Hey there, loves. You're listening to Blooming Out, one of the nation's longest-running radio shows dedicated to covering news, personalities, and life from the LGBTIQ experience. I'm Melanie Davis. I'm Ireland Meacham. And I'm Lucas Fisher. And we have on the show with us tonight a very special guest, April Hennessy. She is running for the MCCSC uh, school board position in District 2. She will be talking with us tonight on all of our issues, plus all the MCCSC funness that's going on. I know a lot of you out there have kids, either school age or going to be school age, and this is uh, a great opportunity to to hear a fresh perspective on the school board, MCCSC, and everything that's been going on this year with COVID, and also some other issues that directly affect Bloomington as a community. So I'm excited. Thank you and welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. It's it's fun. And I, I thank the gods for this technology because uh, we can have people on. And This week, we're also having fun drive here at WFHB. So I just wanted to throw this in. Um, we're trying to ask our listeners and supporters to please support your local community radio station, WFHB, um, volunteer-powered community radio. Without your support, we can't have on guests like we do who are so vital to the community, and we need your help to stay alive. Um, especially this year has been really tough with the coronavirus and things, so we really just need your support now more than ever. So definitely go online to WFHB and hit that big donate button. You were, you were the one, actually the first candidate that we've had on and next week is elections oh and everything has to be turned in by the third right so you know you don't have to answer this but i'm going to ask it because i'm also you know double triple dutying as uh stonewall democrats and all these other things for the aclu for trying to get the vote out has anybody voted early yeah a lot of people have voted. You mean us in particular yeah, yeah. or just in general? I was like, people oh. are voting. It's happening all over. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I've actually been standing at Election Central every single day holding my sign. And I've had volunteers standing there and holding my sign as well. And the lines are incredible. So lots of people are voting early. I want to vote early, but I haven't because all of my time is spent standing holding the sign. So I haven't been able to actually stand in line yet, but maybe tomorrow. Do you need a stick to put the sign on? I mean, I've got some, so we can, or I could get my daughter to come out there. She's not really doing much of anything. Yeah, we've uh, had sticks, we've had strings, we have all manner. And then we have one volunteer who literally just stands the whole time for two hours with the sign over her head. I have no idea how she has that arm strength, but anyway, it's pretty cool. Somebody didn't skip arm day. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I know... Ireland, you turned yours in, right? Yeah. I did uh, absentee ballot. I mailed mine in a couple weeks ago, and then I called and made sure that it was counted, um, and they were able to tell me that. So yeah, yay! That's great. And Lucas, have you? Did you stand in line? No, I haven't yet. Um, 
though I live pretty close and I've seen the lines. So that's sort of why I haven't yet, but it's, <laughs> it's probably going to get worse. Yeah. And it's like, should I go like right at 8 AM or there's probably going to be a line then. So I, I don't know when I have a free hour to stand in line, but it's going to happen. Don't worry. You should go at the end of the day, because here's the thing. As long as you're there before it closes, you can vote. So if the cutoff tomorrow is at 7 p.m., which it is because they extended hours, um, you can show up at 645 and get in line and still be able to vote. The beginning of the day is always the longest line. So I would mm. avoid that time. <laughs> okay. Thank wow, you. I didn't know that. That's really good information. Sort of yeah. like, uh, you know, like Disneyland when uh, you get in line for the ride right when they close, like they can't tell you to leave. So <laughs> it's good to know that it's the same thing for voting. Yep, exactly. <laughs> it's just like Disneyland. Uh, <laughs> anything. Well, the I end just, of the line is about yeah. where your house is, right? That's about a half, half a mile away from the... Yeah, pretty the much actual... like two or 3,000 people in line. Not really. Um, well, no, it, it goes all the way out to the Salvation Army practically right there mm -hmm. on Rogers and that's around the corner. <laughs> so it's a uh, good job, Bloomington. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, I've heard that it's been up to a thousand people a day uh, coming through the line to vote. That's just amazing. And the dedication it takes because the weather hasn't been all that great. But still, like I went past there yesterday, I think, when it was raining. And there are, there was a dedicated bunch of people a block and a half long and, you know, they had their umbrellas and they were making it. So, um, Bloomington in, in some aspects, you are the best. So let me just say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, um, this, is, so this is a pretty big year for, um, for everything, but also, uh, I don't know a whole lot about the schools, but are there a lot of positions that are up for vote this year? Cause I've seen a couple different candidates for, for school board. Um, are there multiple people to vote for or how does that work this year? Yeah. So there are um, four districts up this year, district two, four, five, and six. And all of those races are contested except for district five. Um, I think that individual is running unopposed, but all of the other um, districts have, contested races. And um, they all also, obviously, there's the incumbent who's running again, and then someone or some multiple people running against the incumbent. Um, so, right, because you have two people that you're running against, one incumbent and uh, another newcomer, right? That's right. Yeah, the, your incumbent's been in, the, in office since, was it 2002? It's or almost 2000? 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Um, that is so crazy. That is such a long time. <laughs> um, yeah. Are there wow. like term limits for school board people or? No, there are no term limits. So that's, that's part of it, right? So this has been almost 20 years that the incumbent has been in that seat. Um, and I think in some ways that's great shows her commitment and dedication, but in other ways, you know, we need to make space for um, new perspectives, new voices. I also think the districts themselves haven't been sort of, there hasn't been like redistricting done for a very long time. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, the, that is sort of skewed, but also everybody votes on all candidates. So whether or not you live in that district, it, it's an at-large seat. The district only determines 
where you can run, like what district you can run for, but then everybody votes on all school board candidates. So Okay. And the district also tells you where you can go to school. Is that right? Is that how it works? Yep, that's right. Yeah. So I think there is a lot of implications and a lot of uh, reasons why we we should think about districts. But yeah, districts are really important as far as, you know, where people are are basically required to go to school, right? So. Mm -hmm. Well, um, when we lived up on the hill and actually still here, um, but Kat was Kat was out of the uh, she was already in school at the project school at the time. But uh, Katrina would have gone to oh I just lost the name of it. Wow. Try North Fairview. No. Well, she would have gone to Fairview and Try North. Yep. You know we we were in a neighborhood. We were in a big, a densely populated neighborhood. So we we knew all the kids that went there. Got stories from both schools from the kids that went there. You know I don't hear those stories from the parents of kids in other districts so (laughs) this economic and racial disparities in the school right is is one of the things that you're running on yep and uh can you can you explain a little bit more of that because i know that i know that there are numbers out there that can be looked at showing just how much uh you know for bloomington being such a uh bastion of white liberalism there, the numbers are still shocking when you when you talk about uh, racial inequality and and economic inequality. Yeah, I mean, it it is actually you know sort of really interesting and also really problematic. I think for a long time people have talked about community schools or neighborhood schools and how important they are and the value of them, and I think. It, <laughs> That's true, potentially, right? If you live in an integrated neighborhood or community, but when you live in a neighborhood or a community that's already incredibly segregated, um, both by, you know, so racial makeup and also socioeconomic, socioeconomic status, then your schools are also really segregated, right? And so our district is really still segregated. And I think it's something that people are kind of aware of and people have talked about, but we haven't really yet done enough to bridge that gap and to truly integrate our schools. And um, we see a variety of problems that that come out of that. So not only like allocation of resources, but also um, just things like the the sort of rate of disciplinary action and things like that that are more heavily um, that we see more of at some schools than others is is really problematic and I think you know a clear marker of this too is the sort of wealth gap that exists in our district and for instance like you can go to somewhere like Rogers Benford or Childs and the free and reduced lunch rate is something like you know nine percent or something and then you drive 11 minutes across town to Fairview where it's 83 percent free and reduced lunch so you can see just even in that small bit of data that just one data point right how clearly divided this district still is so yeah, that's a, that's a big thing for me um, in thinking about how do we begin to really integrate our district? How do we begin to address issues of you know, economic disparity, um, but also things like the school to prison pipeline? How do we begin to address those issues? Um, all of those things are, are on my radar, right? And then again, as a former teacher, in the district, I've lived both sides of that. So, you know, I've lived that sort of in the classroom experience or the experience in the building, and I've seen what that looks like. And then I also have um, 
two older kids who are in the district at Bloomington High School North, and I have a younger um, kid who is at the project school. So from a parent's perspective, I've also seen the kind of issues that arise in the community from these various sort of inequities, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then again, as a, as a lesbian mom with, <laughs> you know, I co-parent across, we co-parent across three different households with a total of six moms, right? We have like a lot of, a lot of perspective here on um, the schools in our district and a whole host of issues of equity and things like that, including like the LGBTQIA plus experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was a long answer, but. <laughs> no, that's great. I love it. Yeah, that was a really good answer. Yeah. Very, the district thing, that's what made me think of it because different district uh, districts get different funding. And I think that's a really huge issue. So I'm really glad to hear you uh, speak on that, for sure. Yeah, and um, being someone who, you know, went to MCCSC, you know, public school system, I went to Tri North and then North, um, and I had friends who went to Jackson Creek and South. Um, I did go to Montessori um, for elementary school, and then a lot of my friends, I was the only um, one of my friends who went to Tri North, and the rest went to Jackson Creek. And just from hearing stories, and then also, you know, going to their, you know, athletic stuff and like events and things at, at, at the other side of town, it, it, you can see a difference. You can tell a difference and it, it affects, it affects your sense of self-worth as a, as a kid going to one school versus the other and things like that. And so, yeah, that is incredibly important. Yeah. You're, especially when you're talking about school to prison pipeline, that's such an important issue and doesn't get talked about very much. And I feel like a lot of people, especially in the Bloomington community, like to pretend that we don't deal with those issues. But of course, those issues are still in our community, you know. Um, We just like to pretend like everything's, you know, nice and whatever. But it's it's very clear when you actually take a look at it. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think we do a very good job in this district often of a sort of... um, glossing over those things and and highlighting, you know, a new program we've started or, you know, one person's story or, but, you know, oftentimes what we have is like a single district and two very different narratives, right? And if you are really talking to the people who are marginalized by a variety of factors, right, and getting those stories, um, it's very different. It's a very different story than um, the narrative that you're getting from you know, some of those other individuals who maybe have gone to Childs or Rogers Benford or University and then were sort of tracked into honors classes and then, you know, I mean, it, it is a very different narrative. And so I think for me and part of the reason that I'm running is I do have that inside perspective, right, having been in the district. Um, and I'm also, I've been on the outside of the district for a couple of years. So I would really like to see us bridge the gap between what what happens on the inside and what we know happens in those in those ways and the things that we're conveying to the community right because a lot of the times what we convey to the community is a kind of congratulatory sort of thing like we're doing these things well but I think often we really do need to focus on what's maybe not going so well yet or what we still have to work on and just being really honest and transparent about that so that we can really get to work on those issues. 
Hey, just a quick break to remind you that you're listening to Blooming Out on WFHB. If you go to WFHB.org, it is our fall fun drive, and we have a giant red button that says donate. Please consider doing that. It supports both our community and this radio station. You were on um, uh, Bring It On just, uh, was it last week or the week before? Yeah, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And you spoke about a couple of things that I kind of wanted to touch on too. Uh, for example, anti-racist curriculum. I guess it was approved, but it hasn't been implemented, obviously, uh, since it was just approved. What does that look like? How do teachers, how does the school corporation actually bring that into uh, fruition in reality? Is Are there classes or is it more holistic and integrated throughout yeah, I mean, that's a good question, and there's not a simple or easy answer. So the state officially said that that, that anti-racist curriculum could be incorporated into um, curriculum at the district level, but that's a choice that the districts have to make themselves, oh, okay. right? So a district has to choose to then adopt that or implement it or, or um, do something with it in some way. I would really like to see our district take a stance on that and and sort of agree to incorporate those kinds of things into our curriculum. And I think it's curriculum adoption is a big deal, like no matter what the curriculum is, right? It's a process and it can be a lengthy process. And and how we do that, I think, will be complicated, especially because we're not just talking about like an ELA, like an English language curriculum at the 10th grade level, we're talking about a district-wide curriculum. So doing something like that will probably take time. And my my sense is that there, there may be a way in which we have to kind of, maybe it's a part of the curriculum or it's something that's sort of tacked on at first, but I would really like to see it embedded in the curriculum at all levels at some point, right? And so that means that at the elementary level, they're getting it in a variety of subjects. Um, and I, so not something that's just like a, an add-on, but something that's firmly embedded in everything that we do and in every way that we teach. And I think having anti-racist curricula isn't just like something that we teach people from a book, but it's also a way of being, a way of responding. Um, it's a, It's it has to get embedded into our socio-emotional learning curriculum and that sort of approach the whole child. Like how do we respond to people who are different than us? How do we talk about the issues of um, our black and brown students in a way that doesn't alienate them, but also like informs our white students. So I, you know, I'm not naive. I don't think that that's something we can just do overnight, but I think it's something that we have to at least say, yes, we want to do this Mm -hmm. and then make a roadmap for how we get there. I attended, was it a year and a half ago now, before Kat went into, my daughter goes to North, and uh, uh, before she started attending school, there was a a diversity and inclusion uh, little get-together, Facebook Live, from MCCSC, and they talked about uh, the the concept of windows and mirrors, and how that's really important for the students to be able to see themselves, and also for others to see them in a way that wasn't tokenized or like you said tacked on so you know kids kids are aware they they can see when something is well pushed on them right you know like Mm -hmm. this is this is new this is something that isn't normal if it's tacked on to the end uh whereas if it is included it, it seems to be more of a um natural learning process and she got that at the school that she went to for elementary and middle school and I would love to see that at MCCSC 
as well because the difference in the way that I see kids approaching it is night and day. Also, you know, speaking of the windows and the mirrors, hiring practices, getting more teachers in. Our teachers are primarily white. We need to diversify. We need to get a little bit more diversity in there too. And also uh, LGBT wise, we had one math teacher, I think, at North who was trans. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to out anybody except Greg at North. Greg Chafin, he's been on the show a couple times before. And he's one of the counselors at North, at least for another couple of years. And I think he's going to retire in five years. Yeah. Uh, they will lose a great resource with him. But having somebody that you feel comfortable coming to, seeing somebody who's, the, they have done studies with Black students who have Black teachers, and they excel at a greater rate than uh, those who, who don't. So I think that's super important. How do we get there? Yeah. I mean, wow. It, it, again, like it's not an easy or simple solution, but I think we have to be working towards that. And, you know, you're right. Our district is like, according to the Indiana Department of Education, is 94.8% white in, in terms of teachers, right? But our level of student diversity is something like just over 25% diverse. So um, there's a huge gap there. And you're right representation matters and it matters in terms of student learning outcomes as well right when a student feels understood or seen or heard in a classroom that can increase the the learning outcomes for that student enormously and um, so i think we need to make a really big sort of concerted effort to ensure that our diversity at the teacher level is reflective of our diversity at the student level you know um <clears throat> And as a teacher myself, who was, you know, a teacher of color, I'm an Asian American woman and also, you know, member of the LGBTQIA plus um, community, you know, and as someone who I, I co-sponsored the United Students group with Greg mm -hmm. as well. Um, it matters so much, I think, to students to know that there's a safe space in the building, to know that there's someone who's an ally for them, to know that there's someone who, you know, can sort of help fight those battles for them when they arise. And I think being able to provide that for our students is, it's crucial to their education and to their sense of safety in the school. Um, and, you know, our district, I think we've tried some things and we're not quite there. I mean, even as a, I'm out, like I'm not in the closet really ever, but there were moments in, in certain classrooms where I did still feel like it wasn't completely safe to be out because I wasn't sure that with certain groups of students or certain populations of students um, and their parents that if I said the wrong thing or if I said, you know, even if I said something is as sort of innocuous as, yeah, my wife and I went apple picking with the kids, like even just saying something like that, there are so many moments where people will say, well, like you're pushing your gay agenda or something, right? And and that is, it's just, it's ridiculous, right? Because yeah. any heterosexual individual in the department could talk about their spouse or their girlfriend or their boyfriend without any kind of, even like giving it a second thought. Mm -hmm. But even though I've, I've been out for years and I'm not in the closet in any way, I still felt sometimes like I had to censor those things in a classroom full of tons of kids because I know that in other districts and other places, those things have become problems. And our district has not always been a champion 
um, or a supporter of the community, right? I mean, yeah. even just a few years ago, we made basically national news because of the sort of Confederate flag issue at North, which actually arose in response to um, a student with a pride flag. And in that mm -hmm. moment, um, when they were sort of officially creating a policy that the Confederate flag would no longer be allowed to be at North in any way on clothing or anything else, there was this discussion about the fact that potentially they would ban the pride flag as well because they saw it as quote, equally disruptive, right? That's a problem. Right. Um, it yep. doesn't lend itself to a, a sense of safety in the district as a lesbian woman or a queer woman, right? Yeah, that's wow. Well, Ireland, yeah. you were there for that, right? I was, yeah. So I remember, I mean, every year in high school, we always had a day, um, the day of silence where people would, you know, use the duct tape over their mouth and it's to, you know, honor like this, the silence that um, the LGBTQ community faces um, in, you know, being out and everything. And, um, and on that day, every year, it was expected that we would see Confederate flags um, as, as, as much as pride flag, like it was expected, you know, and it was almost, you know, and it contributed to the culture too, because a lot of people, you know, who may have wanted to participate in the day of silence or whatever would be shamed or bullied into not doing it or like even, you know, made fun of for being, you know, an ally or queer, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. And I also will say, you know, I, I had a, a queer health teacher in, um, in middle school and I, she wasn't able to talk about being queer at all in class ever. And we did not learn about, you know, we did the whole sex education curriculum and everything. Not once did we talk about queer sex education or anything like that. And it wasn't her fault. What was she going to do? You know, um, she, you know, at a, at, our school, it, it was known that you would probably face consequences if talking about, if you were talking about things like that. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a real thing. <laughs> um. So like this actually still, this blows my mind. Here we are in 2020 and we still have educators who don't feel comfortable being out because of many reasons, but I'm hearing also that the, the school corporation doesn't have their backs. And this kind of goes to what I was uh, going to bring up about GSAs. North has or had a thriving GSA with the kids gone. I think it kind of dwindled a bit. Hopefully with some kids are finding relief in that school is open and maybe they can get to a socially distanced and safe meeting because that was a safe space for a lot of kids. When we went offline, I know um, my daughter was really upset that she wasn't able to be with her friends and zoom just wasn't the same but i've heard some things from uh parents at south saying that they didn't have support for their gsa and their gsa they didn't a lot of students actually didn't even know because i i took it upon myself to ask a lot of students didn't even know they had a gsa at the school and we were talking lgbt students like <laughs> out and proud LGBT students did not know that they had a GSA there. So that speaks to the, uh, the fact that MCCSC doesn't have a policy corporation wide about 
how to protect people, how, how to support people. And, um, and the, the racial aspect is just absolutely horrible. You know, even with LGBT kids, it's hit and miss where, where you're at, which district you're in. And that isn't socioeconomic, perhaps. It's ideological for the leaders of the school. And also it's left up to the leaders of the school. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be problematic. Not to put you on the spot, but if you have any thoughts on that, I'd love to hear them. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that we do this often in our district, like all the time, actually. Um, we leave big decisions up to individual school buildings. And so like with the Confederate flag thing, for instance, I think South already had a policy about, you know, no Confederate flag paraphernalia or anything like that. And North might have kind of have a, they might have had like a soft policy, but it was never really enforced. Mm. Um, But it often like the district won't make a decision like that. Often they will say, well, we're giving schools autonomy to deal with their population of students, which in theory sounds great. And I think that in, in many cases, it's really important for us to leave some of those decisions up to schools. But when it comes to like student safety or, or issues like this, I think the district has to adopt a district-wide policy because if they don't do that, there's, there's too much like room for um, like discrepancy and argument and like, well, it's not a school policy or well, it's a school policy, but it's not a district policy. So we're not going to follow it or it's not a this or that. It it just leaves like too much room for um, trouble to arise. And so when it comes to issues like this, like, are we going to take a clearly anti-racist stance? Are we going to take a very clear position on LGBTQ plus issues? Are we going to take, I mean, those kinds of things require a district level response. And um, so I, I would like to see us get there. Um, I know that they have tried to do things like sensitivity training and things like that in the past um, several years, even with like their bus drivers, monitors, transportation, um, and, and a variety of other things because we actually had an incident not too long ago um, with my daughter who was riding the bus home and because she lives at two different houses, right? One week on, one week off. She rode two different routes. Mm. And in her freshman year, we filled out all this paperwork that allowed her to be on both of those different bus routes, but we didn't know that that stuff didn't carry over into her sophomore year. We just assumed that like once the bus stuff was sorted, it would stay that way. Um, But apparently not because she came home one day and said, the bus monitor told me I'm not allowed to ride the bus route at this parent's house anymore. And we said, well, why? And she said, well, they said that um, there was no paperwork for that or I'm not listed or something. And we were like, oh, okay, well, we can figure that out. But apparently in order to get to that information, the driver had interrogated her about, or not the driver, but the monitor had interrogated her about which parent was her real parent which parent did she spend the most time at? Like, which house did she live at the most? And she was trying to explain, like, it's 50-50. I, I live here for a week. I live there for a week. And that's why I ride these two different. Well, there are no, but no, who's your real mother, right? Which one's the real one? I mean, these are the kinds of issues. And that route actually services the youth um, shelter. And, you know, our, our daughter's fine, right? She's okay. She was a little shaken. She was a little embarrassed about being put on the spot in that way, but she's had a really solid 
um, support system. So she's fine. But I just kept thinking about all of the students, all of my students, all of the students who ride that route, who maybe it's already a struggle for them to get on the bus every day. Maybe they're coming from the shelter. Maybe they're only there a week and then they're somewhere else a week and then they're back a week. I mean, there are so many reasons for a kid to be on a bus route one week and not an, another, right? Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking like, what about that student who already struggles to get on the bus and now they've just been interrogated in front of all of these people? What's the likelihood that they're gonna get on that bus again the next day, right? Um, right. And so it's things like this that <laughs> I know that we're, there are efforts being made, but those efforts aren't yet enough, right? We shouldn't have situations like that. And this, the fix was easy. That monitor just had to get our information and call us, the parents, and say, explain or fill out this paperwork or whatever. And we would have done it gladly, but that's not how it was handled. Um, so yeah, I think we have a long way to go. And I think the district has to play a really strong role in sort of making some policies and drawing some lines. So my daughter has been going back and forth to Riley for most of her life since she was four. So 11 years now. And we would get to the various different uh, specialists and we would get interrogated because uh, I'm an intersex trans woman. My ex was a cisgender woman and Katrina lives with me. If I was taking Katrina to the doctor's office and they didn't have to the doctor's appointment and my ex wasn't there, I would get interrogated as to who Katrina's, you know, are you really Katrina's parents? Can you provide proof of this? You know, and we've been going there for over a decade and they're still asking questions like this. I think it's, uh, and, and this is Riley and Riley's otherwise very, we, we'd never had a problem other than frontline people like the monitors who mm -hmm. are going to somehow Perry Mason this into a big deal. And it, it's also because they, they weren't prepared. They don't have it in the, their system, in Riley's system. They, they don't have a way of explaining these things or to get to the information that is there. We had our custody agreement. It's actually searchable if you go into the right thing. They just didn't. So that's very frustrating and they need to clarify policies like that. And it needs to be done across the entirety of the school system because I'll bring in uh, Amy Barrett uh, right now. When they talk about uh, when they talk about marriage equality, she has she's gone on the record to say that she thinks it should be a state by state issue in something that is so universal as marriage, recognized in other countries. Right? You know, if you are married and you go to England, you're still married. But in the United States, before we had Obergefell, you were married in Illinois. But if you came to Indiana, you weren't married anymore, and we're looking at having to go back to that now but on the smaller scale you know you at north you get support at north you have a place to go if you're lgbt at north you would have a counselor to talk to who you could be more comfortable and open with and teachers who you could be more comfortable and open with if they felt that way there was the the little sticker the pride flag sticker that you could put up in your room to show it was a safe space and then there was a whole issue with that too if you make each different school, you know, all these kids are from Bloomington. It's not like we are Chicago and there are vastly different systems that need to be uh, taken into account and populations. We're all pretty much the same town. You can drive across it in 10 minutes. To say that 
oh, well, North students can get the support, but South students don't need it, you know, or that the junior highs don't need it or whatever. It seems absolutely ridiculous to me. I agree that there are some things that are, that should be changed systemically and making sure that happens is super important. Welcome to the ASMR station break. Remember, you're listening to Blooming Out on WFHB. Visit WFHB.org and click that donate button. So MCCSE is losing teachers at an alarming rate. Speaking of, of getting teachers in and retaining them, you've done you've done a, a great job. You went back and you checked the loss rates per year and were double that according to your research. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're double the worst. How can you on the school board, how can the school board in general support teachers? Because when they were meeting to decide whether or not they would open at all, teachers didn't have a voice. Teachers didn't have the ability to speak up. You were a teacher, you have that perspective and bringing that to a school board that doesn't hear teachers seems really important, but how can teachers better be heard? How can we support the teachers and retain them? Yeah, I mean, so they would argue that teachers had a voice through the union, which is true, I think, to some extent. Um, you know, we have a union. I was part of the union. I respect the union. Um, but we also have to recognize that I think that's like 500 and something of our almost 1,000 teachers in the district, right? And I also, I know that it's probably not a popular thing to say, and probably it will make some people angry, but those union fees are cost prohibitive for many people. It's like almost $900 a year. So when you talk about how much is coming out of your already meager teacher salary, mm -hmm. right? That's a lot every single month or every single paycheck. So I think there is, there are some issues there that exist about why people are or are not in a union. Um, but no, I mean, I think we even tallied the numbers since 2011 for September and October, like we put them together. And um, the average of like teachers who have resigned or retired at this point in the semester is like 4.1. So typically in a typical year, you would see something like 4.1 teachers had retired in the months of September and October. It's unusual because it's the middle of a semester. People typically wait until December or the end of the school year or whatever. Um, and this year we're already up to 11, right? Which I know isn't a huge number, but that is, that's still 11 certified staff, like teaching positions. When we're talking about like support staff, and this is like bus drivers, cafeteria workers, things like that. Um, the numbers are higher. They're always like a little more turnover in those positions because they're like hourly positions. So that's just something that we see more of, but in a typical year, it's something like 45 or the average from 2011 to 2020 is like 45. Um, this year we've already seen 76, 76 resignations, um, or retirements. And so the numbers are huge, like double in both categories. Um, and that is alarming. It is concerning. And I think part of it is like those support staff individuals who are not, they have no access to the union. 
they literally have no voice. Like the, the district wasn't polling them, asking them, surveying them, looking for their perspective. And these are, these are actually staff who are at higher risk than maybe even our teachers sometimes, because if you are a bus driver or a cafeteria worker, you are actually getting kids at um, the highest exposure point. So when they're masked off, there are no masks on and they're eating or in a bus where you're like a single person and you can't monitor all the kids behind you who may or may not have their masks on the whole time. I mean, you're actually at a higher risk. And so I think it would have been absolutely, absolutely crucial for us to survey these individuals and just to say, you know, what's your comfort level? How are you feeling? What are the issues that you see? What are the, the sort of challenges that you're facing? Um, but we didn't really do that. We also didn't really survey the other teachers in the district. Um, and that would have been a, a district duty. Like they would have had to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think that also there's a lot of, um, speaking for teachers, like for instance, at the school board meeting last night, it was like, let's recognize the hard work of our teachers. And there was a PowerPoint sort of video with music overlay. And that's great. I think we should recognize the hard work of our teachers. I also think we should probably listen to them. And we keep hearing about like, well, we're not the experts. You know, we're not the experts in disease. We're not the experts in this, um, this sort of pandemic. We're not the... But the thing that I have said repeatedly is like, but teachers are the experts in the classroom, right? And they are with those kids all day long. The administrators, the school board members, even like, you know, the union president, uh, none of these individuals are in those classrooms all day long, every day. Right. And so I think we do need to do a better job of listening to teachers we need to do a better job of um, being in discussion with them. And I think we need to give more sort of weight and credence to their, to their voices and to their concerns. And I don't think that we have yet done that. This is something that I, I've just observed. Like I said, my daughter just started MCCSC schools, uh, what, year and a half ago. And it seems like much of the rest of Bloomington, where you have... I will say they're the white liberals who know best and they took a class on this or they listen to audiobook and and they have their opinions and they're going to uh, lay them out for and you just have to abide by it and I was hearing so much frustration from parents afterward in Facebook groups about you know they seem to be completely removed from the whole process so yeah we need somebody in there and we do have a, a couple of people actually jacinda was supposed to be in here uh, last week uh, she couldn't make it and she was i really appreciated her responses and what was his name ben is it brandon brandon brandon, brandon. i got the b in the n right uh, <laughs> but they both seem to want to know more and ask more questions and everybody else pretty much had their mind made up before they even walked in the room. At least that's how it seemed. And to a lot of parents, I happily endorse you. Uh, not that that might carry much weight and might actually hurt your campaign. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I believe that your experience from the teacher to the parents to the community member level is really important to have. So thank you for running because uh, I've seen 
some of the other people in the mix. And there's one guy, and I think this is the person Jacinda is running against, who actually hasn't ever put anything out. He's just a white guy with a name. And I think he came from the Carmel Clay schools, which should tell you a whole bunch already. Um, uh, it, it's, uh, is he just going on the fact that he's a white guy with a name? You know, is this, he doesn't feel the need to even campaign. He has no platform. He has nothing that you can see. So, um, uh, in my books that he's not even a candidate, uh, and, and some of the other candidates just don't seem to have what it takes. So thank you for stepping forward. I know it's not easy because I know you've gotten some blowback and, uh, um, but it comes with the territory, right? It does. I mean, it's been rough and there've been some challenges and some heavy critique. Um, you know, in large part because uh, one of my kids is at the project school right now, and that's a chartered public school. And so, you know, I've come under a lot of fire for that. Um, you know, people saying, well, your kid is at the charter school, and so therefore that should not, you should be disqualified from being able to run for school board, essentially. Um, you know, and, and part of that is, the, the part of that that just gets me is that I do have two kids in the district, but because I think they're not my biological kids or um, they're my kids through marriage, I call them my bonus kids, they're my stepkids, right? I think somehow in people's eyes that counts less. Um, so they keep, uh, that sort of has been glossed over. And the fact that I'm a former teacher um, seems to hold no weight for many people at this point. Um, I think that it's kind of like being a single issue voter, right? Um, yeah they have their eyes on this one thing and, and that's sort of it for them. Um, despite the fact that I've said, like, I don't even support giving local referendum money to chartered schools. Right. Right. Um, I I've said a lot of these things over and over. Um, but then I have to also recognize that like, this is just part of it. It's part of being in the public eye. Um, it probably won't stop. If I get elected, people will always be upset with me for some reason or another. I think, um, it's just important to continue to be transparent and honest and also just to keep speaking up for the things that I think are important. And, you know, I've also sort of been accused in some ways of um, the fact that my platform somehow negates the work that's been done in the district. And I, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting one to me because I've never ever said that there's not been any work in our district. I've only said that the work that we've done isn't yet enough. Right. Um, right. And that we still have a lot more work to do. And I think that's absolutely true. And I'll, I think win or lose at this point, I'm a hundred percent in, I think we have a lot of issues in our district that the pandemic haven't, it, it's not that the pandemic caused these things. It's just amplified or highlighted these issues that already existed mm -hmm. in really, um, sort of startling and shocking ways for many people, you know, because now they're like really front and center. So I'm all in win or lose, you know, we've got things to do in the district and I'm committed to getting them done. And obviously I'm a one person, I can't do anything on my own. Um, but I think there's community backing and, and, um, momentum at this point too. So I'm hopeful. Well, if we can, uh, if we can get a bunch of you in, you know, um, <laughs> you'll have to clone yourself, but, uh, no, I, I think that there, I think change can come. Uh, I think we need to shake it up. People who want the ally cookie or the recognition for doing the absolute bare minimum 
those people make me sick too. Yeah. You, you, you're not out there. You're not changing. You're just doing enough to keep you from getting in trouble, I guess, or criticized. Uh, and I'm sorry, but the, that time is gone. It's not the eighties anymore. We have to do better. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that. And, uh, also I want to mention something about the project school because I have nine years of, of experience there. We came in the second year, it was open. And it is a public charter school, uh, which means it is a public school. It is, it's uh, not private. There are charter schools which are private and they run on a completely different set of rules. Um, they don't have the uh, requirements, uh, state requirement uh, to meet. Their project school does. They have, they do all the testing, they do, everything that any public school is required to do. And I, I really want to say this because this is something that I kind of think has kind of gotten lost, um, is that the kids that MCCSC was failing because it happens, be kids who need, uh, they have IEPs and they need uh, extra help, even kids, and this is, this is what disgusted me when I heard it, uh, kids who were testing low in the standardized tests, which gave the schools a lower grade. They were encouraged to find another school. That is something that's unconscionable. I can't understand how uh, a school would encourage a student to leave and instead of actually helping them come up to uh, the level of education that they should be at. So the project school took these kids in when they came, when they won the lottery, and that that should be something that's commendable. And those kids go to MCCSC when they leave the project school. You know, the vast, vast, vast majority of those kids go right into high school or junior high, actually. They they leave so that they can, and this is, I heard from a lot of parents, so they can get a taste of what it's like to be in a public school because it's, well, most of us, I think, went to the public junior high, right? We know what it's like. But yeah, and that's not necessarily a critique of, of MCCSC. It's, a, it's a more of a critique about American school systems. It is another indication of why we need more progressive action from our well, schools. And the whole standardized testing issues in and of themselves are problematic, right? The fact that we grade our schools based on them, the fact that um, at one point teacher um, bonuses or raises were tied to Per student performance on standardized tests and a host of other things, right? And yeah. the thing is like, you know, it's not, well, there are, there are so many reasons why um, Bennett, my son, is actually at the project school right now. Some of them, which, you know, I think this, this program highlighted in many ways, but I just want to say like the thing that he came home or he didn't come home, but he was here the other day talking to me about something and he had to go in for an evaluation of some, of some sort. And he said he really didn't want to go to school in person um, because he was worried about the pandemic. He's got a ton of anxiety. He's a total worrier. Mm -hmm. And when he finally had calmed down enough to sort of express what his anxiety was about going to get this evaluation done, he said, it's just, this is in my risk zone. It feels risky to me. And, um, you know, my risk zone is something that doesn't feel all the way safe. And that is language that the project school gave him, right? Mm -hmm. That language to be able to articulate and sort of discuss those things. And in another instance last week, he said, um, we were having a conversation 
And he said, oh, I have, I have a connection to what you just said. And, you know, that is the project school language right there, right? I have a connection. I mean, just that in and of itself, being able to be in conversation with someone and not just sort of go off on your own tangent, but to say, I have a connection to what you're saying. I'm hearing you. I'm listening to you. I'm seeing you. And I have a connection. And now I want to speak. I want to have my turn, right? Mm -hmm. That is such a gift, I think. And I would love to see us be able to offer that kind of um, socio-emotional learning, that sort of whole child approach, which I know the district is now starting to implement, right? But I would love to see us offer that to all of our children in the district. They all deserve to have that kind of language and vocabulary. They all deserve to understand um, how to connect and, um, be connected to in that way and to feel like they're part of something bigger. And I think, you know, we haven't yet done that fully at MCCSC. And I am so fully invested in ensuring that our kids all have that kind of language and that kind of experience and that, that sense of saying like, this is risky for me and here's why. This is in my risk zone and here's why. Or this is my connection point and here's what I have to say. I mean, that to me is, I just, I try to imagine what our junior highs and high schools and what our individuals who graduate and leave the district, what that looks like if we have those things in place already at such a young age, right? Yeah. I mean, it just transforms everything, I think. Absolutely does. Um... And that, that's what I would talk to other parents about it, uh, with Kat was that this should be, these should be things that, you know, all the schools teach because uh, they're valuable to the children. They help them uh, feel more comfortable learning in many ways. Mm -hmm. And, um, and obviously they're child centered. So we are out of time <laughs> and I could go on talking forever and ever. Uh, thank you so much for coming in and being a part of our show and getting your voice out because, um, you know, I think that it was such a new phenomenon almost 20 years ago or whatever, LGBT folk having children, you know, there, there were a few, but now it's so common. And I think that we should spend more time becoming aware of it and, and the issues that our youth face and the issues the LGBT youth face in the schools too that's always been an issue. So I'm, I'm so excited. I can't wait till I see your name up on the, <laughs> the leaderboard. So, uh, Hey folks, hey, uh, everybody, <laughs> if you go to WFHB.org, you will find a shiny, beautiful, enticing red button that says donate. And if you push on that, you can keep your public local radio station here and giving to you all the news all the special programming like blooming out for instance or bring it on or all of the uh all of the other brown county hour and stuff like that those things bring your community to everyone so go hit the donate button give everything you can with a smile knowing that you're supporting not just the radio station but your whole community <sighs> okay that's it we're out of time that was very nice, Melanie. You know, we we didn't even get to the uh, we didn't even get to the fun stuff. Uh, Is so, any of that stuff really fun, though? Uh, <laughs> well, okay. To be fair, we kind of talked about socio emotional learning. Um, yes. yes. 
we talked about that. So we kind of talked about that. And that is super relevant to, we all had an article about uh, three easy ways to help children unlearn gender identity and sexual orientation bias. And I think the emotional uh, approach to learning is those are just life skills. And yeah. that's, that's what schools are supposed to be teaching. And I think it's just wonderful that you have such a strong focus on that because I think that is really what we're supposed to be teaching in schools because uh, I mean, school is about learning, not just about the curriculum, but also just about life skills and learning how to be a person. So yeah. it's just yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Oh, and, and that is a connection and, to, oh. yeah. <laughs> to uh, you know, back to the discussion about uh, flags and stuff. It is you were learning how to, we're teaching the kids and as students, we, learn or we used to learn how to be uh, citizens and how to be members of society and how to live together and work together. And uh, obviously we've seen in the past few years that we really probably all need to go back to school on that one. That needs to be revisited. But the thing we didn't talk at all about is probably the most important to the things outside of our guest. Tenacious D and <laughs> Pete Buttigieg and Susan Sarandon and all of this wonderful cast recreated the time warp. Go look it up. It's on YouTube. It's fabulous. It's beautiful. And it'll make you want to donate. And you can donate at wfhb.org.org. We are out of time. Ireland, take it away. Blooming Out is a production of WFHB Community Radio, produced by Melanie Davis and Kate Young. Lucas Fisher is our engineer. For Blooming Out and WFHB, I'm Ireland Meacham. I'm Lucas Fisher. I'm Melanie Davis, and I'd like to give one more thank you to April Hennessy for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Remember, if everything were straight, roller coasters would be one long, boring ride. Be well, stay safe, speak truth, manifest equity, demand justice. And good night from your Blooming Out family.